check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Hello, this is Anna Geiger from The Measured Mom. And in this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Pam Snow. She's a professor of cognitive psychology in the School of Education at La Trobe University. I became familiar with Dr. Snow through some of her work, as well as her blog, The Snow Report, which has very interesting articles about how to teach reading, and also quite a few clear criticisms of balanced literacy. In our conversation today, we talk about why it might be that higher education professors are often reluctant to let go of balanced literacy. We tried to work through why that might be. I can't tell you that we came up with any big solutions, but I think that understanding the problem is the first step. And she certainly offers encouragement at the end of the episode for people who are trying to change things in higher education to reach out to her because they've made some big changes at their university. Normally, I trim my episodes so they're not quite this long, but I really didn't want to take out any of the things we discussed. I think there's a lot of interesting things that Dr. Snow shares worth thinking about. And I also apologize, I did not click my proper microphone, so I'm a little fuzzy, but Dr. Snow is the main speaker in this episode, so I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Snow. Welcome to you too, Anna. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast. I've been reading your Snow Report for a number of years now. Um, it was a little hard for me at first uh, because I was coming out of balanced literacy and you're pretty hard on balanced literacy. And you have a great place in a university to educate people about the science of reading. And so I wanted to talk to you today about why it might be, why it's so hard to get this out of our higher education systems and maybe steps that can be taken to, to get there. Um, so, but I'd like to start by you telling us about yourself and mm -hmm. what brought you to what you're doing now. Okay, well, there's, when you're my age, there's always a bit of a long story there, Anna. I don't want to take up all of our time, but um, it seems to me that a, a lot of um, academics in particular land in certain places for a variety of reasons, and that's certainly the case for me. So by background, I am a speech-language pathologist. I'm also a registered psychologist. My PhD a very long time ago was in the field of acquired brain injury, which meant that I learned a lot about neuropsychology, um, which has stood me in good stead in various different ways um, in my career. After I finished my PhD, I deliberately wanted to go wide and widen my knowledge and skills and I worked for three years as a research fellow in a role that was essentially an adolescent mental health um, uh, well-being health promotion kind of role it, it had a focus on drugs and alcohol but really it was about adolescent mental health and well-being and that really got me thinking about factors that drive adolescent um, mental health, who flourishes in, in adolescence. Um, I couldn't take off my speech-language pathology hat in, the, in that work that I was doing. And I, I was reading more and more about risk and protective factors in adolescence. 
and thinking more and more about the role of academic achievement as a protective factor. And it was a kind of a metaphorical peeling of the onion, I suppose. So who succeeds academically? What are the factors that contribute to academic success? And of course, that got me thinking about reading um, as a driver of academic success and therefore as a, as a mental health protective factor. Now, protective factors collude with each other as do risk factors so one protective factor on its own is not going to do all the work that we need done for children and adolescents to promote their well-being but we know that succeeding academically is an important protective factor and we know that struggling academically is an important risk factor when it comes to um, children and adolescents well-being. So that led me then to do research kind of metaphorically down the bottom of the cliff and look at um, language in particular, but also the literacy skills of young people in the youth justice system, um, mm -hmm. young people in out-of-home care in the child protection system, and then more recently young people in what we in Australia call flexible or alternative education systems. So. Um, young people who are not managing the demands of mainstream schooling but um, everybody wants them to stay connected to school in some way. I'm sure you have similar kind of settings in the United States that we call flexible education settings. Um, and of course what that research that I did over a couple of decades did was, was show me just how vulnerable vulnerable children and adolescents are with respect to language and literacy but it really um, got me thinking in public health terms about the the role that schools can play as an intervention as something that can if we get it right be a protective factor can contribute to better trajectories for particularly children who are coming from behind in some way. So they might be coming from behind because they come from a very chaotic and sometimes, frankly, dysfunctional um, home environment. Um, they might live in crime-prone, um, so socioeconomically disadvantaged communities. They might be plagued by that awful soft bigotry of low expectations that everybody has for them. So what is it that school can do to actually alter the life trajectories of, of those um, young people? And, and to my mind, it can't do very much if it doesn't get reading instruction right. So that's how I really became engaged with the importance of reading instruction as a public health intervention, something mm. that we have to get right for all children, but particularly for those who don't have a raft of other protective factors around them, like affluent, well-educated parents who are doing a lot at home with respect to language and literacy, who can pay for tutors, who take their kids to libraries. You, you know, as I said, risk and protective factors hang around together. Um, and this is a protective factor that we're in a position, the grown-ups are in a position yeah. to actually do something about. So about what decade was that that you started getting interested in, started paying attention to what was happening with teaching reading? Um, in the early 2000s. Um, okay. I've always been interested in reading um, and my own children who are now in their mid-30s 
went to school, to primary school, elementary school in the early 1990s um, and so were exposed to, you know, and, and I wasn't playing in that this space then, but I, I remember them bringing home predictable um, texts. I, I think they, they were getting some reasonably okay phonics instruction, decoding instruction, but they were bringing home predictable texts. And I can remember as a parent thinking, this is just silly and feeling like I was breaking the rules by actually teaching them phoneme, grapheme correspondences and teaching them how to decode through the word. And I did that really just using the the logic that applied in my mind from my speech pathology and psychology background that these were skills that my kids needed and I was going to teach them um, those skills. But as a researcher, it was really in the early 2000s. So um, we know balanced literacy kind of took hold in the United States in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then whole language was a couple decades before that. Did you follow the same kind of path in Australia? Unfortunately, we have. Um, when, when, when you have a, um, a bad idea, we say, oh, can we have that too? <laughs> um, send, send it our way. But um, we have been inclined in, I think, a very uncritical way to ad adopt big ideas um, and, and you know, the big idea of, um, uh, of whole language and the whole zeitgeist that that was part of, really, um, even going back a bit earlier to the 1970s and, the, you know, the, the social upheaval um, that in many ways needed to happen and was positive and important when we think of feminism and, um, you know, protests about Australia and America's involvement in the war in Vietnam. And, um, you know, there, there, was a, a, there were a lot of... Um, entrenched ways of thinking that needed to be challenged but of course uh, what was happening in schools got caught up in that slipstream and ideas about how we teach children how to read there, there were ideas that had good face appeal and yeah. if they were correct would have made everybody's life easier um, you know, it would be easier for teachers if whole language and balanced literacy worked. It would make teachers' job easier. It would make policymakers' jobs easier. Um, everybody's life would be easier if it worked. And unfortunately, the grown-ups managed to kind of create and buy into a, a, a big illusion or delusion, probably more a delusion, um, that this was a, a, a good thing to do. But once you deconstruct um, how learning happens in schools, which we've shown can be done relatively quickly, it's very difficult then to, um, to, to, to rebuild um, that, that knowledge because now we've got a generation of teachers who themselves are products of whole language, balanced literacy classrooms, who have an implicit knowledge of how language works but no explicit mastery of spelling or rules of grammar. So they can't articulate uh, a rule. They can see that a sentence is not grammatically correct but they can't articulate um, that mm -hmm. this is not a sentence because it doesn't have a subject and a predicate and a predicate has to contain a verb. You know, that's a, perhaps an, an obvious example of the kind of knowledge 
once that knowledge is taken out, it's not just a matter of a policymaker flicking a switch one day and saying, okay, as of next week, next year, we're going to teach this stuff again, because teachers can't teach what they don't know. Yeah, that's very interesting. I hadn't really thought about that so much, that it's not just people who are who've been teaching for decades who don't want to change, but it's new people who don't even know the difference. Um, and I remember yeah. I was reading one of your I was reading one of your posts and, and uh, you were quoting someone, I don't remember exactly what it was, but how they were complaining about how learning to read with phonics was very boring and they wanted to do something different. And your point was, yeah, but you learned to read. <laughs> and it's funny because I used to say that too. Like I remember being really, like I love to read, but reading class was very boring. Um, and that's probably because there wasn't really differentiation, but um, I was, a, I'm a very, I did very well with reading and spelling and all mm -hmm. of that. So obviously <laughs> the instruction worked and we can certainly, Rowan thinks about this, the art of teaching that can improve what we, that can improve the delivery, but that's just, that's just interesting to think about. And I, I know um, Margaret Goldberg when she talks about about um, the teaching that she does, she's not I, I don't know, she's a, a, um, a bit younger than me, but she was in California and I learned phonics mm -hmm. out east. But she she was a whole language baby, and um, for her, she really didn't know what what you, like what you said. She really didn't know how English works. And that really puts people in a tough position. So why, why do we have so many people in colleges that are, I would guess, many of them learned the phonics way. They learned um, how to decode using phonics mm -hmm. that really jumped on balance literacy and don't want to let go. Look, it's such an important and interesting question, Anna, and... I don't think, you know, as with all big complex questions, I don't think there's one simple answer. But um, I think it's partly a, a, a kind of a paradigm issue that schools and faculties of education in colleges and universities, and I'm going to make a generalisation here, but I think it's a generalisation that holds up, are more influenced by sociology than they are by cognitive psychology. So there's been, um, you know, decades of research going on in cognitive psychology, in the field of cognitive psychology, in psychology buildings that might be on the campus adjacent to the education building. Um, and this is on everybody, that there hasn't been enough um, knowledge translation um, and perhaps the cognitive psychologists have assumed that by putting this research out there in the peer-reviewed literature, that education academics would seize upon it and say, oh, this is really interesting and useful, but they haven't. Um, you know, the education academics have been very much swimming in sociological water um, and seeing the world through um, different lenses and I think have bought into the, I'm going to say, people won't necessarily like this, but bought into the fantasy of whole language and, and balanced literacy because, and, you know, as I said earlier, if that was right, everybody's life would be much easier. Universities wouldn't need to have people on, uh, on, on faculty who um, have a detailed knowledge of the structure of the English language linguistically. We wouldn't have to expect our students to learn that information. Um, now, we've got a whole lot of sort of food chain issues here, and I can probably speak for Australia. Well, I can't speak with any authority for America, but in <laughs> Australia, um, 
it's not that difficult to get into an education degree. So for a school okay. leaver, um, how we accept students into university courses is basically an issue of supply and demand. So it's very difficult to get into a medical degree because there's a lot of students who want to do medicine, um, a, a smaller number of places, not all universities offer medical degrees. So the supply and demand curve favours um, academically very high achieving students. They have to um, satisfy other criteria as well to get into medicine, but you've got to be an academically very strong student. Now, in, in Australia, you don't have to be academically very strong. There have been some changes in recent years um, that have meant that, in theory at least, universities need to be um, only accepting students from the top 30% of school leavers, but there are some workarounds um, to that. Um, so, so then we're, if we're going to move away from balanced literacy, we've got to deal with the fact that we're going to te be teaching some conceptually really quite complex information to students who in, in some cases may not have adequate levels of prior knowledge and preparation in terms of their own language skills, their own mastery of how the, the English writing system works. And you know, I see this in my own work in a school of education that students coming in as first year students. So bear in mind uh, in Australia, school leavers can go straight into a four year university degree. We don't have the sort of the tiered college system that, that you have that I don't completely understand, but okay. I, I just. Okay. <laughs> um, and you know, we, we take in, and you know, when I say we, I mean Australian universities take in students who have got, in many cases, very weak language and literacy skills. That's not their fault. And I have written a blog post about this a while ago called This Is Not a Sentence, uh, reflecting on my yes. frustrations in marking <laughs> the first year essays of those students. <laughs> One of our PhD students, actually, in the Solar Lab, Amina McLean, is doing her research on academics across the board, their perception of the, um, the writing skills in particular of university students. So not just in education, but in law, in social sciences, in health sciences, um, everything. And the data is very depressing. So, um, you know, going back to your original question of, you know, why, why is it so difficult to, to shift balanced literacy, I think the level of disruption that truly shifting it is going to create and there are signs in Australia that, that, uh, that our federal government is up for that level of disruption but they may not fully appreciate what it's going to mean in terms of bringing the whole house of cards down um, because we're going to need academics who actually have knowledge of reading, not of literacy, of multiple yeah. literacy, digital literacies, um, you know, which I think, again, you know, people won't like me saying this in some cases, but I think they're really fluffy um, concepts. If a child can read, then they're digitally literate. You know, they can, the, 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 all this business about multiple literacies and viewing mm -hmm. text, <laughs> don't get me started on us asking children to view text. So I think um, the status quo is very appealing because of the level of disruption and upheaval 
that is going to be created at a number of levels uh, in the system um, if we are serious about moving away from balanced literacy. As a fantasy, it served us well. As a reading instruction, yeah. <laughs> it served us very poorly. That's a great quote. I have to remember that one. Um, so I, I like what you said about how if balanced literacy worked, it would make everyone's lives easier because it was so appealing. That's mm. why so many of us did it. Um, and I, I was recently giving a new webinar to um, people that follow me, and it was about um, using data to uh, form small groups and give differentiated instruction. And it was a lot of time and study to put that together compared to the one I gave like four or five years ago about using running records to <laughs> form guided reading groups. That was so simple. You just listen to them read and figure out their level and then put them in groups and follow this lesson plan. But it was now we know that there's nothing to be said for text leveling like that in research and a lot of other things, but it was simple. It, it just was so beautifully simple, four simple steps. Yeah. And, and I, I felt like um, the webinar I gave now, I thought, oh boy, I hope I don't end up confusing people because this is, this is deep. There's so many things to think about in terms of screening data and diagnostic yeah. data. Um, people were up for it, but it is, um, like you said, it's, it's a challenge. And another thing you said too about the literacies, that was interesting to hear because when I was in grad school, I thought I was learning all the right stuff stuff you know this is, this is what I was doing but there was a lot of that and I never really understood it and I remember taking a class about learning disabilities and I did not get a thing out of it I don't know what we talked about every class but it was very fluffy like I don't mm -hmm. think she mentioned dyslexia at all like there was no nothing practical mm -hmm. um I'm, I, I don't even know what we talked about but even even as I was in it I was thinking I'm not sure what I'm supposed to learn from this um <laughs> Yeah, uh, and, and people are paying for higher degrees yeah. that in many cases are not fit for purpose. Um, and in Australia, um, a, a number of education academics have um, really railed against the most recent um, federal government auspiced review of initial teacher education, so not just reading instruction, but initial teacher education. And um, some of the, the the basis of some of the protest is, oh well, is the is the federal government going to turn on medicine or engineering next? You know, are they the next ones mm -hmm. who are going to be told that their initial um, uh, university programs are not good enough? And my answer to that is, well, no, because those professions have really managed themselves very well, and they've managed the trust that has been placed in them by um, by government, by the community. So we're not having inquiries into nurse education or medical education or engineering education because the community and government are not anxious about um, the, the content of those courses. But we have had, you know, by some estimates, more than 100 um, inquiries into initial teacher education yeah. in recent years. And where the smoke, there's fire. Mm -hmm. There's, I was um, in a Facebook group earlier today, and there's often, if you're in a really big group and everybody's on a different page, kind of, someone had a question about, I don't remember, it was something about balance versus, balance literacy versus science of reading practices. And, um, and one person chimed in to say, this is just another pendulum swing. They did balance literacy because it was backed by research, but now we've learned more research and now do this. And I thought, mm -hmm. I, I wonder, does anyone in the upper edu the higher education sector, do they think that balance literacy is backed by research? Like, do they really believe that or do they just not think about it? 
Well, as I said in a um, presentation that I gave recently at a conference, if there's a research study somewhere that says that balanced literacy is a preferable, optimal, superior way of teaching children how to read at scale, um, then I will read that study tonight. I will cancel all of my plans because I'm not aware of any studies that say that balanced literacy um, at scale is preferable to teaching in a structured, explicit way with a scope and sequence and ensuring that teaching is delivered by very knowledgeable teachers because balanced literacy doesn't ask us to be creating a knowledgeable teaching workforce. And I think that is really pernicious for teacher professionalism um, because that's the other kind of angle here, of course, that teachers are professionals. We should leave them alone. Um, they know what's right for the children in their classroom. You know, yeah. you, you've heard this kind of um, reasoning. But as I also point out, um, when I give presentations, the professions in my society, and I think in yours too, Anna, um, that we hold in high esteem are the ones who actually have low levels of professional autonomy. So airline pilots don't get to make their own decisions mm -hmm. about how they take off and how they land aeroplanes. They don't get to create their own safety checklists. They use safety checklists that are provided by the airline industry and they're expected to adhere to those safety checklists. Medical practitioners, you know, the example that I often use is of your local emergency department. If you um, arrive there with chest pain, the nurse or the doctor who is going to triage you is not going to just kind of put their finger in the air and see which way the wind's blowing. They're going to follow a care pathway that says you're going to get an ECG, you'll get some bloods done, you know, there's there's a set of narrow parameters to be followed. So if we're going to talk about professionalism, we have to have this conversation about accountability and about professionalism not meaning choose your own adventure. Yeah. It actually means that we need teachers to have some specialised knowledge and skills that other people don't have because we know that about pilots, we know that about engineers and doctors. They know stuff that we don't know. Well, I want teachers to know stuff that other people don't know. I want them to have that really deeply specialised knowledge. Now, I'm only talking about literacy, but of course it has to apply in numeracy and other areas as well. Um, but then we have to expect that teachers apply that um, in the same accountable way that we ask members of other professions to apply their knowledge because members of other prof professions are actually held to account. Yeah. Um, you, you know, we make notifications to regulatory authorities when a, a nurse or a doctor makes an error, a medication error, or they behave inappropriately, they don't order a test that should have been ordered. Um, you know, this can have really serious consequences for people. Um, but in our system at least, you know, people aren't held to account, teachers aren't held to account if they don't teach someone how to read. Um, that gets explained away as being, oh, well, the parents didn't read to them enough or some kids, um, you know, some kids don't like reading or we haven't found something that they like reading yet or um, you know, it's never the instruction, it's always... Mm -hmm externalized and and I think that's very bad for teaching uh, at a as a profession
That is so interesting. I've never thought about that before, about how the more respected professions have criteria and all that stuff that they have to follow. That's really interesting. And I think we, we, I agree with you that this idea of teacher autonomy is a big barrier to teachers being willing to learn more. And I think another one too is the idea that for some people, oh, I, I think I, I put something on my Facebook page about teaching reading is rocket science, quoting Louisa Motes. And someone was like, yeah. no, it isn't. I taught my child to read and like, you know, and the thing is for plenty of kids, it doesn't seem like rocket science, but it becomes rocket science when you're trying to help kids who don't learn um, through balanced literacy or whole language, which as we found is quite a large percent. Um, so that that's maybe another barrier is for people that have an easy experience doing it, or at least they think they do. And, and I think realize there's more to it. That's part of the problem with balanced literacy that it works or it works well enough for yes. a significant proportion of students. And Nancy Young's letter of reading and writing is a good way of, um, of demonstrating that. But then my question for balanced literacy proponents is, well, is it okay to build an entire education system around the proclivities and advantages of, you know, maybe 60% of students? It, you know, it's not unusual to go into a school where 40% of students are needing some kind of intervention. So, you know, at a, at a public health level, um, we wouldn't be accepting um, measles, mumps, rubella vaccines that work for 60% of babies. Um, we, we want, you know, as close to 100% coverage as we can. And in fact, RTI, response to intervention, as you know, is really fundamentally a public health framework. It's a public yes. health way of preventing difficulties um, and just because something works for some children and probably the children who going back to the early part of our conversation have more of an aggregation of protective factors not not always because there are yeah. children from advantaged families who struggle but again at a population level there's more of an aggregation of protective factors so they're the ones who are going to get across that metaphorical bridge in the first three years of school and other people, other children uh, are not going to. And, and how is that okay? How have education academics who cast themselves in many cases as social justice warriors, how have they been able to sleep at night knowing that balanced literacy is leaving so many children behind? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. When we think about, you know, like you said, the academics, people who are, um, teaching future teachers. You, you mentioned in one of your blog posts about how we teach that we want our, to teach our students to be excited about learning new things. And yet, for some reason, this, there's a barrier to learning new things about the science of reading in many Absolutely. higher education. And then also, I don't know if, if the autonomy goes over to them too. Like is in higher education, do professors get a lot of freedom in general about what they get to teach? Or is it more more oversight? Mm, it's a good question. So there is this thing called um, academic freedom um, that that does um, bestow a high level of autonomy on um, what people teach and how they teach it, except in the case of vocational courses like teaching allied health professions like um, physiotherapy, speech language pathology, or you say physical therapy, um, medicine, 
um, where there is a, um, a professional body accrediting courses. So that's, that's a kind of gatekeeping mechanism. So there are accreditation requirements that have to be met but this is where things, and I'll use that word fluffy again, can get fluffy because there can be some box ticking um, in saying, um, oh, yes, we do that, yes, we do that, and, and this is where we do that. But the actual detail of how we do that, you know, phonics is a good example of, um, you know, there, there may, for, you know, for argument's sake, be a requirement in, uh, in accreditation documents that pre-service teachers learn about phonics instruction. Well, they could learn about phonics instruction in the context of balanced literacy, being you know, very light touch and incidental and probably something that's not really favoured or preferred. Or they could learn about phonics instruction in the context of a structured explicit approach to reading instruction that's built on a deep knowledge of the English writing system. Now, both of those things will earn you a tick in the box to say um, we mm -hmm. teach about phonics, but this isn't a binary thing, it's a dimensional thing. Um, and what we've done at La Trobe University in the last couple of years is really said we are not teaching balanced literacy and we've been the first mover um, in this space um, and, and we've gone down the path of structured explicit um, teaching, really privileging teacher knowledge, the, so building up the knowledge of our pre-service teachers about the nature of the English writing system, historical factors that give us the, the spelling conventions um, that we have, obviously sentence structure and figurative language, you know, the whole reading rope, if, if you like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but... But we will meet accreditation requirements just as much as a, another mm -hmm. university that's doing full-blown balanced literacy will meet accreditation requirements. So there's that's not been enough attention to detail. That may change if the recommendations of this most recent review um, are actually um, implemented um, and, and become real. But for... For kind of structural political reasons, it's difficult in Australia for a federal education minister, probably similar to you in the United States, because we've got eight states and territories um, and education is predominantly managed at a state level. So, and we don't obviously don't have as many states as you do, um, but uh, it is difficult to pull the right levers to yeah. get penetrating down into individual universities. So back to universities and, and not wanting to learn new things. That's not how they would see it, but not yep. wanting to learn about the science of reading. I think one issue probably is um, the same issue that a lot of classroom teachers have faced, that I did this wrong. Like nobody wants to have to say that. And maybe for them, the stakes are higher because if they really publicly say that, that's saying that we've trained, mistrained teachers. Yeah. Do you think that's absolutely. a lot of it? Uh, look, I think, you know, human nature is such that it's difficult to acknowledge when you've um, been on the wrong tram and been on the wrong tram for a long time. Um, it means letting go of your affiliations and, and sometimes those affiliations with colleagues are, deeply personal as well as professional. Yes. Um, 
you know, we, we know, we've known for decades that one of the barriers to people giving up smoking was um, having to let go of friendships. Wow. Um, and, you know, in workplaces, uh, you know, Australia's very, very well down the track on um, anti-smoking policies, but it certainly used to be the case that, um, that the smokers would go outside in morning tea breaks and afternoon tea breaks and, you know, hang out together. Um, and so if you decided to stop smoking, then you kind of were betraying your, yeah. um, your your little smoking network, and I think you know human nature is such that it, it is difficult to to say. Um, I, I think we got this wrong, and I'm going to now um, join this other group. And and you know the the debate has been fierce. Um, and I, I don't see any option to that because it matters. You know, we're, we're not talking about whether we like pink or purple more. We're talking about whether children learn to read and what that means for their entire life trajectories. So the debate needs to be quite forceful. Um, you know, we, we haven't any attempts at kind of... Um, sort of meeting in the middle have given us balanced yeah. literacy. You know, that's the fallacy yes. of the golden mean, that um, when there's two opposing ideas that you just meet in the middle and, and everything will be all right. So I, I think human nature is our biggest barrier um, in this respect, and that's probably going to be the focus of my next blog post, actually, okay. um, the one that's sort of writing itself in my head at the moment, um, because it is hard. Um, but... Teachers are doing it and school leaders are doing it and kudos to them. We need education academics to step up and have the, the mea culpa, I was wrong yeah. conversation that teachers at scale are starting to have and school leaders at scale are starting to have. If, if it's good enough for them, why is it not good enough for education academics? So do you have any thoughts about how that change can happen or have you seen it a positive change among professors where they've seen they've shown an interest in learning about the science of reading and turned their backs on balanced literacy like it just um, sometimes it feels like you're just hitting a wall. Yeah, look, um I I'd say that the silence is fairly deafening um in Australia when it comes to change. La Trobe University okay. has definitely um broken away from the pack um, and is not teaching balanced literacy. We're teaching about balanced literacy because okay. we think it's really important that our students understand the broader context and understand that reading instruction is a contested space and that they'll be going on placements in schools uh, where balanced literacy is the favoured pedagogical approach. So they need to be prepared for that and know how to um, manage that potentially challenging situation um, and there's another couple of universities that I won't name here because it's not my place to name them where I, where I think there are um, positive um, indications but I think the majority of Australian universities are going to try and dig in um, and build the fortress even higher around balanced literacy um, for a range of reasons, because they uh, they don't want to acknowledge um, that the the way that they have been positioning 
um, reading. I mean, in many cases, reading itself is not even a word that turns up very much. In yeah, um, interesting. <laughs> it's all about literacy, and you know, as I said earlier, multiple literacies, digital literacies. Yeah. Um, talking about reading as somehow dry and boring, um, and very teacher focused. Um, mm -hmm. So, no, I, I, I think unless our federal government can find meaningful carrots and sticks, um, and it needs to be the right combination of both, um, then we're not going to see um, a, a lot of change and we're going to, um, you know, continue to lag behind on... Um, uh, you know, global um, indicators of reading proficiency or continue so, to fall further behind. Talk to me about Latrobe University. And was your university ever teaching balanced literacy? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So Latrobe University is um, it's a relatively new university in Australia in the sense that it was established in 1970. Um uh, and it was established in the the, uh, the northern suburbs of Melbourne, which didn't at that stage, um, unless you count Melbourne University, which is just slightly on the north of the Yarra River in Melbourne. Um, but Melbourne University is, is one of our um, sort of sandstone universities. You know, it's a prestigious university. La Trobe was created really to, to serve a growth corridor um, in the 1970s um, and has a very strong social justice imperative in, in everything about its establishment. But it was, like every other faculty of education in Australia, very much a balanced university school of education. Um, in late 2019, my colleague Tanya Seri and I were appointed to the School of Education by the then newly appointed Dean, Professor Joanna Barbousis, who I really need to give a big shout out to here because she has been a very strong advocate of explicit teaching in general and she sees the importance of positioning the science of reading within a broader science of learning um, context. Um, and so Tanya and I were appointed from different positions in the university. So we were in different, in, in fact, we, we are, we were and are still on different campuses. So I work at the Bendigo campus, which is about 170 kilometres. So what's that in miles? Maybe about <laughs> 130 miles north of Melbourne. Um, and Tanya works at the Melbourne campus. So we came across to the School of Education in January 2020, which, as you know, was a very interesting time to be doing anything in this world. Mm -hmm. um, but we were really charged with responsibility for overhauling reading instruction in the School of Education at La Trobe, which, of course, was not popular with everybody. Yeah. Um, Joanna has supported us all the way. We said we wanted to create a, a, a specific platform for our work in the school, which hence the Solar Lab, the Science of Language and Reading yeah. Lab, which is just a virtual entity that supports our research, our teaching, our PhD supervision, consultancies that we do with various departments of education. Um, and then we've been fortunate more recently to appoint Dr. Nathaniel Swain, uh, yes. who you know, um, Dr. Tessa Weedman. Um, so we, we've got a, a strong um, team that is uh, working on um, a complete refresh, uh, which we've already obviously started. We're not just working on it, we're already delivering that 
in our initial teacher education programs and in our master's level programs. Um, so some, some, some people become teachers through a master's um, entry program if, you, if they have a, a, an existing degree, but then we have a, a master's of education for practising teachers and other um, professionals can do that too, that now has a language and literacy um, specialisation. Um, and then we've also designed and delivered three online short courses um, that we've had over 10,000 participants wow. complete um, in three years and overwhelmingly teachers of course from all around Australia. We've had some people from other um, nations as well but predominantly Australian teachers. So we know there's a big appetite for this yeah. knowledge and teachers are angry um, there's, as you would know, there's a lot of emotion in the realisation that there's a lot of children in my career who I could have taught to read. Yeah. And teachers remember names and faces. It's not just a general yeah. sense yeah. of all those kids. It's that that little kid called Rebecca or that, you know, that little kid called Kai or whoever, um, who they still feel, you know, very, um, very strong emotions about the fact that the knowledge that they have now would have worked um, with those children. So the feedback on our short courses has been um, very, very powerful, actually. So you're doing what a lot of universities need to do, which is switch over but obviously like you said that's going to be really hard i know in a lot of american schools they have they train like their whole elementary school or the whole um, staff primary teachers maybe with letters with louisa mm -hmm. Motes. um is that is something like that needed for a staff of a university like how do you how do you even get started with people who are pushing back Mm, well, you can lead a horse to water, I guess, <laughs> and, yeah. and ma making it drink is very difficult. Um, mm -hmm. There was some work done, um, a report done, I don't know whether you're familiar with the 5 from 5 website, but yeah. you, your, yeah, your listeners would be interested in that, and Jennifer Buckingham did a, uh, like a desktop audit um, back in, was it 2018 roughly, I'm thinking, of the publicly accessible curricula for initial teacher education programs in Australia at that time, looking at what they said about reading instruction, uh, what the prescribed texts were, because that's often a very strong indicator of the orientation of the, the teaching, um, and looking at the qualifications of the people who are actually delivering that subject content. And sometimes those people had no discernible background in language and linguistics at all. So drama teachers, art teachers, um, physical education um, backgrounds. So I, I think this is a genuine challenge for universities. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the one that they're happy to talk about. I think they want to position the debate around academic freedom, around, no, we've got this, we're doing this, it's all fine. Um, you're overstating the extent of reading difficulties that you're just kind of drumming up a moral crisis by saying that there are children who aren't being taught to read. Um, and if there are children, if there are children who aren't being taught to read, 
It's because um, schools aren't being given enough money, because we have an inequitable funding system for schools in Australia, which is probably a fair argument. But we know that there are many schools in low socioeconomic status communities who've overhauled their instructional model and are doing amazing things and getting amazing results without getting any extra money. So money, you, you can't just keep playing the money card and say right. give schools more money because it's what schools do with the money that matters. And if they just keep spending it on sets of levelled readers um, and low-impact teaching practices and low-impact teacher professional learning, then they're not going to see any changes and they're going to keep blaming the parents, the children, um, you know the colour of the walls. I don't. I don't know um, anything but the instruction. So, do you have any advice for professors who are seeing the light and they <laughs> they want to make changes, but they're on a staff with people who aren't interested? Any tips for? Mm, that's a good question, Anna. Um, Tanya and I do connect with such people from time to time. Um, you know, we we have to meet in a dark alley, metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> one's allowed to know that they're talking to us in the same way that over the years teachers have contacted me and said you know if my principal knew I was talking to you I'd be in so much trouble mm-hmm. um, so um, so we, we are happy for people to um, to reach out to us um, and and make contact this is as difficult for university academics um, to make change in as it is for individual teachers in schools who want to move away from balanced literacy? Um, it, it is just as just as challenging, and uh, similar to the United States, I guess a lot of academics are on fixed term contracts, um, and you're vulnerable if you rock the boat. Um, if you're a junior academic on a fixed term contract, you know, without tenure, um, without job security, then rocking the boat isn't going yeah. to be a very strategic. Um, career move unfortunately so do you have any answers (laughs) what's it going to take (laughs) oh look um i hope that it doesn't take um 10 years for people to see that latrobe graduates are Mm -hmm. um, graduates of choice are you, you know producing uh, you know, pr- probably staying in the workforce longer because they're going to be more satisfied um, with their knowledge and skills because that's another big problem that we have in Australia, the attrition after five years away from the teaching workforce. And I think a lot of that comes back to initial teacher preparation um, and, and not having a, a proper toolkit around classroom management, um, the science of learning, the science of reading and, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, I, 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 what I can see is that there are more and more examples of ground-up shift occurring. So individual schools, teachers, um, in some cases sectors, are saying uh, we're going to change the way we teach reading. I just don't want it to be one school at a time. Um, yeah. you know, it needs the bottom up stuff is very powerful, and we support that as much as we possibly can. You know, we roll up our sleeves and work with those schools and provide guidance and advice and so forth. But this needs to be happening top down. So policymakers need to be leaning in 
and saying at a population level, this is a public health issue. And yes, the research may not answer every question that we need it or want it to answer, but there is enough research to tell us that on the basis of probabilities, we're going to get more success if we prepare our teacher workforce this way and we're going to see better outcomes for students. It's a slow burn kind of um, proposition and it really mm -hmm. needs bipartisan political support. Yeah, which that's hard to come by around here. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard to come by, yeah. Um, well, I know that... Um, people who are listening, especially people who are professors, would really like to learn more about how things have progressed for you. Are there specific places that I can send them to? Yes, thank you. Um, we will have a, a website going live hopefully next week. So you and I okay. are talking in late September. So hopefully yeah. in early to mid-October, there will be a solar lab um, website and that will continue to evolve over time. Um, we're, we're always happy to, um, to chat to academics who are keen to make changes, um, recognising, excuse me, that, that this, you know, within, within a university, some top-down leadership is, is really needed to make this real because, for example, one of the things that our Dean Joanna Barbousas has done is uh, worked with us on the staffing profile that's needed in the okay. School of Education, yeah. recognising that we can't do all of this on our own. So um, the, the school or the faculty needs to have an appropriate staffing profile um, it's not just a matter of saying to two people, you know, you, you fix this whole thing on your own, um, you do this. Um, and, you know, we, we've, we've still, we're not there yet. Um, we're, we're well underway. Um, so we're, we're still a work in progress and we fully acknowledge that and we need to continue to have some hard discussions um, about what we mean by the science of learning and, and how we can be sure that our programs and uh, we, we talk about subjects where you talk about courses, um, okay. you know, that there's coherence and consistency in those. So we've still got work to do and I think that will be an ongoing process of ensuring that the coherence and the consistency in our messaging yeah, so it's a process with a lot of moving parts. And so I'm yep. sure people will be really happy to know they can reach out to you to get help with some of those because it's going to just take someone that's gone through it to help you, encourage you, and maybe give you a few small steps to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we need to kind of zoom out and ask ourselves um, how history is going to judge us on this mm -hmm. time um, and what, what history is going to record about what actually was the best way um, mm -hmm. to teach children how to read, all children, not, not just the fortunate ones who are going to get there anyway um, by hook or by crook, by virtue of their circumstances and the, their parents' resources and, and so forth. And as you know, Anna, as a former balanced literacy teacher, even for those children who do get their imbalanced literacy classrooms, many of them have major deficiencies in their spelling. 
Um, yes. so, so explicit teaching is not just about um, getting to efficient automata automaticity with decoding as quickly as possible. It's also about improving spelling and, um, and writing. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, hi history already tells us that there is a preferred method. It just happens to be harder and requires yes. to walk up a steeper hill. Um, and we we need to work out how to do that in in ways that produce better outcomes. I mean, it just sounds so cheesy and simple, but be better outcomes for for all children. Um, because at the end of the day, this is about children and children's futures. It's not about the academics and the tribal affiliate, the academics egos and their tribal affiliations and their preferences. It's, you know, ad adults who are proficient readers and writers need to be very careful about decisions that they make about other people's children. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the voice that you've been for so long and continue to be and for all the day-to-day the -day work you're doing to train future teachers in Australia. Such a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, thank you, Anna, and thank you for all that you do. I love your podcast. Uh, I always uh, am excited to see a, a new Triple um, R um, podcast episode dropping and um, hope that we can get to talk again at some stage. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 143. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.